Did you like the new song they introduced this morning? Good stuff. Good stuff. Rich, rich biblical text in that song. I love that song. So uh, thanks to the worship team for leading us. Uh, You have come on a day in which we are launching a new series. Now, don't get too scared. If you were here last time we launched a new series, it was like 1987, and it took us till now to finish it. This is a short series. Um, We're going to spend about the next month or so um, in this new series of messages entitled Dollars and Cents, and it is about what you think it's about, so don't leave, okay? Um, There's much to be said on this topic of money and what does it mean to be a Christian and deal with money? What does the Bible have to say about money? What is the value of money? What is the purpose of money? What does God want us to do with money? How do we think about money? Uh, There's a lot to be thought about in terms of uh, this topic of money and we're going to be jumping into it for the next several weeks and really kind of tearing it down. So for those of you who maybe feel like, okay, I get, there, I get to go to heaven one day, I get that, you know, Jesus makes you feel better and everything, but what about the practical, everyday things of life? What does the Bible have to say about those things? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about those things. So let me kind of set it up for you this way. When I was um, maybe about eight years old, my family bought a new house. So we moved to a new neighborhood, new community. And this house that my parents bought was literally three times the size of the house that we moved out of. They were in this little starter home for all this time. And then uh, things got good financially for my family, which was kind of like this in my lifetime, ups and downs, ups and downs. We were either rich or poor. I don't know what it's like to be middle class. But we went from from this little cracker box house to this great big giant six bedroom, two story house. And when we got there, before we ever moved in, my father hired a team of people who basically went upstairs and knocked down all of the walls and turned the whole upstairs into one giant game room. Today they would call it a man cave. We had in there a pool table, a ping pong table, a pinball machine, um, every kind of game you can imagine. It was a place where they had parties and all this kind of stuff. And they basically just got upstairs, looked at these three bedrooms that were up there and said, we don't need these bedrooms. They knocked down all the walls and they created this gigantic space. And do you know why they were able to do that? Because it was their house right? If you came as a guest into somebody's house and you looked around and said, you know, this place would be better if we knocked down all these walls, you think you would do it? No, that's not what you do as a guest. But when you own the place, you get to move in and rearrange things. You get to do the things the way that you want to do them. And so in case you haven't heard, let me be the first to tell you, when Jesus moves into your life, When Jesus moves into your heart, the first thing he does is start kicking down walls. The first thing he does is start making the place his own. He starts setting it up the way he wants it to be. Why? Because he is not a guest in your heart. Okay? So if you have one of those bumper stickers that says, God is my co-pilot, will you please take it off your car? (laughs) 
God is not supposed to be your co-pilot. God is not supposed to be your house guest. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he moves into our hearts, it's his heart. When he moves into our lives, it's his life. And he begins to take over. So he starts kicking down walls and he makes the place his own. Let me put a little slightly different spin on it. Most of us have some sort of filing system for our lives. Now, if you're old like me or older, chances are you have a file cabinet somewhere in your house. Now, young people, hang on. Maybe we'll ask an older person. They'll tell you about this. But there are actually these physical cabinets that you put files in, right? And the files have labels. And then you put things pertinent to that topic in those files, right? Now, if you, if you do it on digitally, you might have something on your computer or something on your phone where you organize things into files. And it might be like uh, work, exercise, uh, budget, um, uh, schedule, finances, all that kind of stuff. It just goes into all these different uh, folders, all these different categories. When Jesus gets into your life, now I'm not talking about I started visiting a church and I've been thinking about this Jesus thing. I'm talking about when I surrender my life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, when he becomes my king, then what he does is he says, hey, guess what? I don't want all those files. I don't want a marriage file. I want a Jesus marriage. He goes, I don't want a job file. I want a Jesus job. I don't want an education file. I want a Jesus education. I don't want a kid's file. I want Jesus kids. I don't want a money file. I want Jesus money. So the Christian life can get a little uncomfortable because God wants total access. And if nobody ever told you that when you first started hearing about Jesus, I apologize because the Bible's absolutely clear about it. God wants total access to your life. God cares about your sex life. God cares about your thought life. God cares about your financial life. God cares about your relationships. God cares about what you do when nobody's watching. God cares about all that kind of stuff. And he insists on being Lord of all that kind of stuff. And so when we get down to practical things like that, by the way, the Bible addresses all of those things that I just mentioned multiple times. So I haven't chosen this topic of money to talk about. It was handed to me in the pages of Scripture. And if we're going to teach the Word of God and we're going to try to make it practical and we're going to try to figure out how this works in our lives, we're going to have to talk about things like sex and things like money and things like jobs and all those kind of things that we have a tendency to keep separate from our spiritual lives. We have this idea that there's some false dichotomy where this is my spiritual life and it involves like prayer and um, worship and reading my Bible and going to church and volunteering and all that. That's my spiritual life. And if you ask me how my spiritual life is, that's what I answer. Oh, I've been having great times of prayer. Oh, I learned something new in my Bible study. That's my spiritual life. But the rest of my life, the way we tend to look at it is my life. And I do with it what I will do with it. Because God has authority on the spiritual side, and I have authority on the other side. And Jesus stands back and looks at us doing that and goes, you have missed the point when I said, I am Lord of all. 
So we gotta get rid of this false dichotomy. The Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. In fact, you know, Jesus loved to teach in parables. A lot of the teaching that's recorded of Jesus is done in parables. He, he taught 38 different parables that are recorded in the scripture. 16 of them are about money. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible, right? Um, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a full 10% of the verses deal directly with money. The Bible gives us about 500 verses on prayer, beginning to end. The Bible gives us fewer verses than that on faith, but it gives us 2,300 plus verses on money. So this is not a secondary issue to God. This is part and parcel of Jesus being Lord of our lives. So why does he give us all of that discussion of money in scripture? It's because money is a universal concern. Don't get confused. Don't start thinking, well, the Bible actually speaks more about money than it does about salvation. That must mean money is more important than salvation. No, nope, you missed the point. It's not about which of these topics is most important. He's talking to us about money because he wants to be Lord of all, and he knows that money is this universal thing that everybody in every culture in some way has to deal with. And so if he can get to our hearts, then, then he can talk to us about our money. So he talks to us a lot about money. God knows that we can't afford to be left alone when it comes to this subject. Now, before I go further, I just try to do this this week. I want to address the big elephant in the room. A whole lot of us get an uneasy feeling when the church starts talking about money. It's just a fact. We might as well talk about it. We might as well admit it. A whole lot of us have an uneasy feeling when the church starts talking about money. For some of us, that's because we are, know that the Lord is trying to deal with us in this area and we don't want him to have access to that part of our lives. But I think for a lot of us, it's not that. I think that for a lot of us, we're uncomfortable with this because um, there's a perception that so many churches and so many Christian leaders have been untrustworthy when it comes to the topic of money. That's it. There's this, there's this track record. We've seen and heard and read about televangelists who have private jets. And, and we, we've seen on late night television the guy that says, if you send me 100 bucks, I'll send you an anointed prayer cloth that will heal your cancer. And, and we've seen the abuses that often take place in the name of Jesus on this issue of money. And so when we hear that the church wants to talk about finances, we grab a shield and we put it up and we go, I'm on the defensive now because somebody is trying to get into my wallet. There have been scandals that, that have to do with money in the church. There have been uh, countless occasions where greed instead of uh, the love of Christ has compelled the church to do what it was doing. There's been false teaching on this topic of what is money about and what is wealth about and what is God's plan for our lives regarding wealth. And guys standing there in a nice suit and tie with a Bible in their hands teaching us things that the Bible does not teach on the topic. And as a result, a whole lot of people have been left disillusioned, frustrated, 
and defensive when it comes to this issue. So with that in mind, I want to start this dollars and cents um, series by saying two things very, very clearly. First, on behalf of those preachers and churches that have not handled the money conversation well, I apologize. If you, if you are scarred, you come from a background where you have seen abuses in this area, there's nothing that I can do to, um, to justify it. There's nothing I can do to explain it. What I can say is that we are all human beings, and human beings often deal with greed, which we're going to get to in a few minutes, and that um, a lot of times greed overcomes what people are trying to do for the Lord, and I apologize if that has happened to you. And I apologize for the fact that as Christians, you sometimes have to defend Christianity because of the reputation that has been given on this issue of money. Where churches have failed to handle this topic well, I am genuinely sorry. And it's one of the reasons I'm preaching this, because I want to make sure that we do handle it well. I want to make sure that we do handle it biblically, so that moving on, you won't be stuck with the residue of that bad teaching. Second thing, and I really want you to hear me on this, the purpose of this series on money is not to get something from you. It is to do something for you. We are not doing this series on money because the elders got together, looked at the budget, and said, boy, it's about time to preach on money, isn't it, Pastor? <laughs> That's not why we're doing this. You're not going to hear us calling for special offerings during this series. You're not going to hear us talking about how you've got to give this much and you better start giving today. You're not going to hear any of that kind of stuff because this series is not about what somehow we can get from you. It's about doing something for you because every single one of us has to deal with finances and every single one of us could take God's word, apply it in our lives and do better with the way we're handling our finances. So you have my word. I'm not going to try to confuse you on this. I'm not going to try to coerce you on this. I'm not going to try to manipulate you into giving more money to the church. What you give or don't give to the church is completely between you and Jesus, and the Bible has enough to tell you about it that you don't need me beating you over the head to do that. And we have a pretty good track record around here of not overemphasizing giving. If anything, We've underemphasized it to your detriment. So you can relax, okay? Put your guard down. Don't worry that somehow somebody's trying to get in your pocket. This is not about getting anything from you. This is about doing something for you. The reason I'm preaching this series is because God knows we all need some guidance in this area. And he's given us so much guidance in scripture. And remember, your financial life is not separate from your spiritual life. So that's the big principle number one. You have to get straight in your heart if you're gonna understand any of the rest of the teaching that is gonna come in this series. And by the way, let me just tell you now, this is not a preachy series. This is a teachy series. 
We're going to be digging in and going, okay, what are the principles we can learn? What does that look like in our lives? And so it's not going to be a whole lot of hooting and hollering and entertainment type stuff going on. It's not going to be a preachy series. It's going to be a teachy series. But in this teachy series, what you need to know first and foremost is that your financial life and your spiritual life are not two separate things. And my job over the next few weeks is going to be to try to come up with as many ways as I can to say that over and over and over and over again until we get it in our hearts that our financial lives and our spiritual lives are not two separate things. The way I deal with money is inextricably linked to the way I deal with God. The two just simply can't be separated. That's why uh, we're here to have this conversation about money for you. So what we're going to do over the next month or so is to take a look at this topic of uh, the spiritual aspect of money from as many different angles as we can and try to, by going all the way around it, get a great picture. Have you seen how they do this with the new uh, types of cameras they have? They do this in sporting events where there's actually a camera that moves around the play and, it's, and you see it in video games, right? You get to see every aspect from every angle and every side. That's what we're trying to do in just a few short weeks, okay? So sharpen your pencils, get ready, because here we go. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, And if you don't know what the Sermon on the Mount is, it's this uh, gathering where Jesus got a bunch of people together. This is the longest sermon Jesus preaches in the scripture, in my opinion, and I I think it's correct um, because, you know, it's my opinion. In my opinion, it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And we pick it up in chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 19 for our purposes today. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. He, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let me describe the setting for you. We're on a hillside. Jesus, early in his ministry, is just starting to sort of make a name for himself. He's starting to be known in the region, and people are starting to hear about this amazing um, rabbi who preaches powerfully and, and does miracles. And so the crowds are beginning to get larger and larger, and Jesus takes his close disciples, and he says, come with me, and he goes up on this hillside, and when he gets under the hillside, uh, he sees the crowds gathering from every direction, and there is, and you could go, if you ever visit Israel, you'll see this, there's a natural amphitheater right there that is sort of built into the area, and Jesus sits down and begins to teach them, and that seems a little weird because here people stand up when they're going to teach, but in scripture, commonly, a rabbi would sit down when it was time for him to teach, and he would begin to teach. That's what Jesus is doing. We're all sitting and listening to what he has to say, and this is the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, 
right here in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Highlight that, underline it, circle it, put a star by it, put a bookmark in your Bible there. That's an important passage. That's an important statement for the rest of this whole series that we're going to be doing, and we're going to be coming back to it again and again. In other words, when he says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, he is saying, listen, don't tell me that you've given your heart to Jesus Christ when financial prosperity is really where your heart is. If financial prosperity is the thing that is always on your mind and it's always the thing that drives you and it's always the thing that you care the most about, don't sit here and talk about being a servant of Christ because you can't have two masters. You're either going to love one and hate the other or you're going to hate one and love the other, but you can't serve both God and money. So if you want to know where your heart is, take a look at where your treasure is. If you, if you talk to missionaries, they, they can explain this if you're a missionary um, to unreached people groups, your training is to go in, learn the language, learn the customs, build relationships, and when you have enough of the language and a, and a strong enough relationship, you begin to share the gospel. And when you share the gospel and people come to know Jesus, then you begin discipling those people in the little tribe that you're dealing with, and you begin to disciple them until there are some who are raised up who are ready to be leaders in the church, and when they are ready to be leaders in the church, then you go ahead and move on to the next unreached people group. But if you're a good missionary, you always come back Back to check on them, right? Just like Paul did in the book of Acts. You always come back to check on them. And if you talk to missionaries who have experience in this, they will all tell you the same thing. The biggest thing they have to deal with on the negative side when they come back to check on these groups that they have reached out of tribal peoples, the biggest thing that they have to deal with is something called syncretism. Now, syncretism is a $20 word that basically means mixing together. And what it means is that you've introduced them to Jesus, they've accepted Jesus, they've begun to worship Jesus, but in so doing, they have not completely walked away from their old pagan faith. And so then they take the things of their paganism and begin to mix it into their Christianity, and oftentimes the biggest job of the missionary when he goes back is to clear the junk out of the gospel and to make it clear that this is not Jesus plus your spirit guide. This is not Jesus plus your totem pole. This is not Jesus plus your ancestors. This is Jesus. But we have a tendency to mix that in, and that's a sign of paganism, and it happens wherever you find idolatry. So it's, it's prayer to Jesus and prayer to ancestors. It's the Lord's Supper and animal sacrifices. It's visiting with the pastor and then visiting with the witch doctor. And it's not seen as a compromise to do that. But this isn't just a problem among tribal people. It is a huge problem in America as well. Even though we come to Christ, many of us have a hard time letting go of our idols. Now, you say, I don't have any idols, really? Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, talks about this a lot, and he talks about idols, and what he says is um, people do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, and they obey them. 
So start asking yourself, what are the things that have that kind of a place in your life where it has your love, it has your trust, it has your obedience, it has your focus, and ask yourself, is this something that in God's will can coexist in my life with Jesus as Lord? If not, you're dealing with idolatry, whether we want to call it that or not. In other words, idolatry happens in the human heart when we put someone or something in the place that should only be reserved for God. Now, do you think we're ever guilty of that with money? Do you think that any Christians ever have a situation where they think, if I don't have enough money, I'm doomed? Do you ever think that any Christians ever have the situation where they say, if I just had more money, I would be fine? That, that somehow if I just had a better car, if I just had a bigger house, if I just had a better job, if I just had a bigger paycheck, then I could relax and I could be free from anxiety because everything would be okay. This is one of the most common things that we see in American Christianity. We have come to trust. It's so ironic. Take out a dollar if you have one and look at what it says. In God we trust. And yet, for so many of us, we have a tendency to set God aside and trust in dollars. And it always leads us astray. So here's my point. It's syncretism. It's a heart issue. It's a worship issue. Mixing your, your new God with your old God is a problem. It's a heart issue. It's an issue of eternal significance. Now, most of us don't think about money that way. We think about money in practical terms. We think that money is there to buy us practical things on earth, but the context of Matthew 6 insists that money is not simply a temporary practical thing, but it's a thing with eternal significance and a spiritual nature. Go to, go to the beginning of Matthew 6 with me, and let's look at verse 1, just so we can get some context here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, as Jesus shifts gears in his preaching, here's what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In other words, there is a tendency that we have to care more about the temporary accolades of men here on earth than to care about what our Heavenly Father knows about us for all of eternity. We have a tendency to be focused on and even to value temporary things more than we tend to value spiritual things, eternal things. And then he uses the rest of chapter 6 to explain what he's talking about. And as he goes through chapter 6, he begins by talking to us about dealing with the poor. And he basically says this, help the poor, but when you do it, don't do it to be recognized by men so they will praise you for it. If you do it for that reason, you've already gotten your reward. There's no reward for you in heaven. And then he goes on and he talks about praying. And he says, when you pray, don't do it to be recognized by men. Some of us, every time we're asked to pray in a public place, all of a sudden our language changes, our posture changes, and we start speaking of these and thous as though we're, we're in Elizabethan England, and we think that somehow that impresses God, and somehow that impresses the people that are listening to me pray. And if I am praying so that the people who are listening to me will be impressed, and they're impressed, I have gotten my reward, he says. And then he goes on, he goes, when you fast, don't 
walk around all gloomy and sickly looking like you haven't had a meal. It's really hard for me to look like I haven't had a meal in a while, but I won't try to impersonate that. But, but don't be walking around like looking all down because you want people to know you're fasting. And someone says, you're doing okay? And you're like, oh, I'm on a 10-day fast. I'm on a 10-day fast from exercise, by the way, so pray for me. I'm hoping that goes well. But um, he says, when you do that, if people are impressed with you, congratulations, you have your reward. But it's not a, a temporary thing. It's an eternal thing. Wouldn't you rather have a reward with your Father who's in heaven? And he goes on and talks about the value of those rewards. Then Jesus in his, in his list of things that relate to chapter six, verse one, comes to the way that we handle money. So first dealing with the poor, then praying, then fasting, and now money. And that's in verses 19 through 21. Look at it again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures uh, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not for a temporary purpose or a temporary treasure that we deal with money, but for an eternal purpose and building up an eternal treasure that doesn't have an expiration date on it. This topic of how we handle money is not a trivial passing issue. It has eternal significance. It has spiritual importance. That's why he gives so much attention to it. And back to verse 21, that's the thesis of the whole chapter. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, we're so often tempted to judge the hearts of others. But let me just give you some advice. Forget that. You'll never be able to judge the heart of another. Start judging your own heart. And even then, it's really difficult. Because the scripture says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Our own hearts deceive us. But he says, if you want to judge your own heart and figure out where you're at spiritually, one great piece of evidence is where your treasure is. Look at your treasure. Jesus says, um, look at the, at the uh, things that you care the most about. The old saying is that if you, if you want to know what somebody's committed to, check their bank statement and check their calendar because it gets real practical at that point. You could talk about all the things you believe in and all the things you're devoted to, but if none of your resources and none of your time go to solving those problems or dealing with those things, then you're just kidding yourselves. He says, check your treasure, and that'll tell you where your heart is. So Jesus says, if you don't know how you're doing spiritually, if you want to know the condition of your heart, ask yourself where your treasure is. What do you value the most? What do you long for? What is it that, takes, that it takes to make you feel content? What does it take to make you feel satisfied? What do you least want to give up? What are you least willing to lose? Now you're on the track that will tell you something about your heart. If the answer to any of those questions is anything other than Jesus, you have a heart problem. So welcome to the club. Now let's be clear, because I don't want you to get this wrong. Jesus has no problem with you having money. Whew. Good news, right? Jesus does not have a problem with money. He doesn't have a problem with you making money. 
He doesn't have a problem with you saving money. He doesn't have a problem with you having money. He doesn't have a problem with you spending money. He doesn't have a problem with you investing money. He doesn't have a problem with any of that. His only problem is when you love money. So, so he doesn't come around and say, if you want to follow me, the only way to follow me is to empty out your bank account and follow me as a pauper. You know, some of the godliest people I know have been unbelievably blessed financially. God blesses people financially. Oh my goodness, this room is filled. Everybody in this room is in the top 1% of the richest people in all of human history. So let's not think for a second that it's just those really rich people over there that have a problem with money. God looks at us and says, money is a tool. I want you to have money to use it for a certain purpose. He doesn't have a problem with money, but he has a problem when we love money, when it becomes a heart issue, when it's idolatrous. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 famously says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil right? The love of money. It doesn't say money is evil. It doesn't say money is the root of evil. It says the love of money is a root, one of the roots, of all kinds of evil in this world. And you don't have to think for very long to know that that's absolutely true. The things that human beings have done to one another in order to get more money in the history of this world are just mind-boggling. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's a heart thing. That's what he's saying. And God's trying to protect us from the disaster that comes when we give our heart to money. When you love money, the results are devastating. In fact, that that same verse in 1 Timothy 6, it ends with these words. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this love of money leads us away from God because you cannot serve two what? Masters. So if we're going after money and money is mastering us, then we cannot be going after God at the same time. So we are by definition getting more and more distant in our relationship with God as we try and try to make money more central in our lives. And as a result, Everything crumbles and falls apart. The results are always, always, always devastating. See, God says that money is a tool to help us accomplish what he wants to accomplish in and through our lives. But too many of us don't see it that way. We don't think of money as a tool to help us accomplish God's will. We think of God as a tool to help us get more money. Ouch. When when we begin to think of God as a tool to help us get more money, we have flipped the role of money in our lives. And and before you say, boy, I'm glad that's not me, (laughs) give me a second. Because here's the thing. Um, How many times have we prayed for God to give us more money? I mean, how many times in your life have you prayed for God to give you more money? Lord, the tuition is due next week. God, please somehow give us the money, right? How many times have you prayed, Lord, the car's broken down and we didn't budget for it. Lord, please somehow give us the money. And by the way, scripture tells you to pray that way. No problem. 
But how many times do you pray that way? Lord, Lord, I bet on the Raiders and took the points. <laughs> God goes, if you bet on the Raiders, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Please, God, give me some money. How many times are those our prayers? But how often do you look at your paycheck, your paycheck that you earned with your hard work and your expertise, how many times do you look at your paycheck and pray, Lord, direct me what you would want to do with this money that is about your kingdom and your glory? And just ask yourself, compare the number of times you prayed, Lord, show me how to use what money I have for your glory, compared to the amount of times you prayed, Lord, somehow, some way, give me some more money. And you begin to realize that this is a problem for most of us, maybe for all of us. See, God's calling for a heart adjustment here, to the point where what we care about most in every area of life is His glory and His kingdom. And by the way, when that's true of us, he promises to take care of the rest. Same chapter, same sermon, right? Just skip down a few verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Same context. Here's what Jesus says. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, we, we flipped it upside down. We think that we have to seek first how to make sure the rent gets paid, how to make sure the bills are covered, how to make sure we have all that we need, how to make sure we're able to take care of our kids, how we're able to save for college, how we're able to take a vacation every summer, how we're able to buy a new car, all those things. We think we're supposed to seek after those things and we get all that stuff figured out and we're finally just completely exhausted from all of the effort and the worry and the anxiety and the fear and the doubt that is surrounded with that kind of thinking and then we take whatever level of energy Energy we might have left and we use it to worship God and God says you've got it completely backwards if you would seek me first if you would seek my kingdom first if you would seek my righteousness first in all these practical areas of your life believe me God says I will take care of every need you have you don't have to worry about those things God's got that covered if we can get this principle straight in our heads we'll never be uh, able to trust, if we don't get this principle straight in our heads, we will never be able to trust God with money. We've got to get it straight. Seek first the kingdom, and he takes care of the rest. God's not trying to take anything from you. His heart is to bless you. In fact, James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God's not going to be different than he's been in the past. God has always been the one who meets the needs of his people. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. He's the one who met those young men in the fire. He's the one that pulled Daniel out of the lion's den. He is the one that calmed the storm. He is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who meets our every need. And if we're looking somewhere else, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Now, <clears throat> I got to wrap up, so let me... Make the statement that you've been waiting for me to make ever since you heard I was going to be preaching on money. You can't take it with you. Am I right? 
You cannot take it with you. Listen, you can try, but your kids will not let it happen. You cannot take it with you. And we know this, right? This is a, you know, death has a 100% victory margin in this one. You don't take it with you. King Tut thought he was taking it with him, right? Filled that tomb in. What do we do? Went and got all that stuff and put it in museums. He didn't take it with him. You know, um, there's there's two great stories uh, from the life of John D. Rockefeller, you know who John D. Rockefeller is. He, he was the richest man in the world during his lifetime. If they say that if you, if you calculate his net worth today in today's dollars, he would be worth personally net worth over $300 billion, okay? This is a super, super rich guy. There was no one else close to as rich as him during his lifetime, um, and he, he was asked one time in an interview, how much money do you need? And he famously said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. I have more than anybody, but I still have this drive. I'm still not satisfied. I still feel like if I could get just a little bit more, one more deal, one more dollar, one more opportunity, if I could just get a little bit more, then maybe I'd be satisfied. Then, of course, since you can't take it with you, he died, just like everybody else. He died, and when he died, he was the richest man in the world, and all of these firms were going after his, you know, the control of his funds for his family because the commissions on handling his stuff was just over the top, and so everybody was scrambling and trying to get in uh, an inside corner, and one financial investor met with the family attorney to talk about this, and he asked a very straightforward question. He said, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? And the guy just looked at him with a very puzzled look, and he said, all of it. All of it. Same as the rest of us. You are not going to take it with you. So God, who is for you, God who is your source of supply, God, who desires to bless you and meet every one of your needs, he says, instead of loving money and clinging to money and hoarding money for the few short years that you have in this life, why not use it for God's glory? Why not use it for God's kingdom? And in so doing, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there is no rust, rust, there are no moths, and there is no thievery where there's no expiration date on anything. Why not shift your thinking so that you're living for God's purposes? Because as Jesus tells us in verse 24, it's a question of who gets your heart. Look at verse 24 again. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can only have one master. Is it gonna be God? Or is it going to be money? Now remember, this is just introductory. This is just setting the table for a lot of the practical stuff that's going to come in the next few weeks. Trying to get us to remember that money is a spiritual thing. And we're going to keep talking about this and we're getting more and more practical. But just so that I don't leave you without any sort of practical application today, um, let me tell you, there is some practical application here. Let me suggest something. Start asking yourself new questions. Ask yourself this. 
when I look at my budget, does it glorify God? Could it glorify God more? When I think about this purchase, does it glorify God? Could it glorify God more? When I think about uh, my generosity, does it glorify God? Could it glorify God more? See, we have to start asking of the issues in our practical lives spiritual questions. Does this honor God? Does this bring praise to God? Now, there's a little section in here that leaves us a bit confused from verses 22 and 23. Let me just reread it real quick. The eye of the lamp is the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You get that, right? It's right in the middle of this passage on money, and then he goes right back to you can't serve two masters. Like, what is he talking about? Eyes and light and lamps and darkness? It seems very strange doesn't seem to fit here. And I've seen so many uh, commentators and preachers pull this passage out and look at it and go, well, I think the eye is a symbol of this and darkness means, you know what, guys, we're overthinking it. This statement that Jesus makes about the eye being the lamp of the body and light and all of that kind of stuff, he makes this statement in other places too, completely unrelated, where he's teaching on completely other topics and it stands out in those places too. And you're like, what is it? Why is he saying this? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? I'm trying to open your eyes. Have you ever, <laughs> I know you have, you ever been in a hotel room and you have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom? The odds are 70 to one that you're gonna stub your toe on something, right? Because they have those blockout shades. I mean, it is black in a hotel room in the middle of the night. And if you didn't leave a light on, you can't see. You don't know where the furniture is. In my bedroom, I know how to get from the bathroom to the bedroom and from the bedroom to the bathroom with my eyes closed. But if my wife reorganized the furniture, I'd be dead. <laughs> right? You have to have some light to know where you're going. And if you don't have light, you are going to misunderstand what you're seeing. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I'm trying to open your eyes here. You better pay attention because I'm trying to give you some light on a topic that is absolutely essential. Listen, we all have a problem with greed. I'll just wait for the amens. I'm sure they're coming, right? <laughs> we all have a problem with greed. Like me, I want amens, right? Um, but most of us never think about our problem with greed. We never even notice it in ourselves. We want stuff, but that seems normal to us. I just had the joy of uh, planning, not planning, but uh, helping to pay for a wedding for my daughter, <laughs> right? Um, and here's what I've learned after marrying off two daughters. Weddings can be really expensive. I mean, really expensive, <laughs> right? There's a lot of dads out here going, yep, that boat I was going to get is gone. So weddings can be really, really expensive. And, and you go, well, I got to have this dress. Well, that dress is $10,000. Well, 
Well, we have to have this venue. Well, you can't get it for, for less than five grand. And we have to have this caterer and there's gotta be steak and there's gotta be salmon because you know no good wedding doesn't have steak and salmon, right? You have to, you have to and it just starts building up. While you're in the process of planning that wedding, you don't feel all greedy about it. You're just going, I'm making decisions. I've, I've got stuff to do. I want some of that. I really kind of want that. I really want. And it's the same thing if you ever go shopping for a car. You know, you can walk onto the lot going, you know what? I really don't need a new car, but I'm just looking at the new models. You will drive away with a new model, right? Because you get in that car and it's so much more comfortable and so much quieter and you love where the windows are and it has a backup camera and all, and all of this stuff. And you're like, how, how do I ever live without this? You don't feel greedy, but you're greedy, and you don't realize it. And so Jesus is saying, I'm opening your eyes here. I'm showing you greed is a problem. We all get caught up in it. In fact, in this same teaching, in Luke's uh, recording of the Sermon on the Mount, in the same teaching, Luke gives like a synopsis of it, and in Luke's uh, account, Jesus says these words, watch out for greed. Watch out for greed, because it'll hide. You don't know what's there. Money pretends it's here to serve us, but it's actually trying to master us. And you can only serve one master. Now let me bring this um, home to a group of people who to one degree or another have an issue with the love for money. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is enough for you. 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 Jesus is enough for all y'all. Jesus is enough. His forgiveness is enough. The cross is enough. The Holy Spirit is enough. Eternal life is enough. Abundant life is enough. Jesus is enough for you. And when you get that in your heart, it will change the way you think about money and material things for the rest of your life. Jesus is is enough for you. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, today we want to say thank you for being enough. We want to confess that sometimes we tend to think you're not enough. And even though we could get the answer right on a quiz if we were asked if you were enough, sometimes we live as though you're not. So God, forgive us. Cleanse us. Set us free for any of us who are still under the grip of money and the idol is making us serve it. God, I pray that you would help us to trust enough in you that we could be set free from servitude to an idol and instead be walking with the living God. God, help us to find our hope in you. Help us to find our joy in you. Help us to find our peace in you. Help us, God, to find our satisfaction in you. Thank you that you are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.